0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans. Romans chapters 7 and 8 will be our passage today. I'm going to begin by reading the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. Here's what they say, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation... This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for sending us your Son, the incarnate word, who does for us what the law could not do, makes us righteous, makes us law keepers in him. We pray that this morning as we consider the written word and the incarnate word that you would give us insight, give us clear heads and hearts, change us more into the image of him, who kept the law perfectly, Jesus, your Son. Amen. I enjoy reading books. I read, read a lot of books. Uh, I, read, I read history. I like to read biographies, biographies of, of important people, or uh, people who accomplish things is maybe a better way to say it. I like to read biographies in history. I like to read theology. Sometimes I read theology for the purposes of, of, of uh, the teaching of the church, sometimes just for the joy of it. But what I really love to read is fiction. I really love to read good stories, good fiction. And, and one of the great things about reading fiction is that you can pick up a good story, you can pick up a good work of fiction and read it and enjoy it and, and get a lot out of the story. And you don't have to know anything about the author. You don't have to know anything about the context in which the author wrote. You don't have to know why they wrote or what, what message they were trying to communicate. If it's a good story, if it's good fiction, it just stands by itself. It is its own thing, and you can enjoy it that way. At the same time, when you do know something about the author, you tend to get more out of even a good work of fiction than you would otherwise. And so what I found is that when I really enjoy a particular author's works... If I then take time to learn something about the author, him or herself, learn about their biography, learn about their life circumstances and their worldviews, learn what was going on in their life when they wrote, maybe read something that they wrote about what they wrote, then go back to what I originally liked without knowing anything about them, I find that I learn more things, like I get more out of it than I had otherwise. And that's true, of course, not just for for fiction, but it's true of the scriptures, too. We don't have to know everything there is to know about Moses or about Paul in order to get something important out of their writings, especially given as it is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We can read it without knowing the occasion for which they wrote, and we can still get a lot out of it. And the Lord is merciful to us in that way. But when we do know something about the human author, if we do take time to learn, for example, what Paul was doing uh, when he wrote a particular work like Romans, what was going on in his life, and, and what his influences from the Old Testament were, and what the circumstances are in which he is writing, what the occasion is that he's writing into, and if we know something about the people to whom he's writing, when we know stuff like that, and then we read the book of Romans, or whatever biblical book it is, We tend to get more out of it. And I want to suggest to you that's true not just of the human authors of Scripture, but it's true of the divine author of Scripture, too. You can read the Bible, and the Lord will use it to minister to your hearts. But as you read the Bible, and as you consider it, and the divine author who wrote it, you're going to get more out of it. And then it works in kind of a cyclical way, because as you consider the divine author of Scripture and read what he wrote, and then allow what you're reading here to tell you about the divine author himself, you learn more about God. So the more you know about God, the more you're going to get out of the Bible, and the more you get out of the Bible, the more you're going to know about God. And it's really a beautiful kind of a process, isn't it? That's true of every part of scripture, and it's true particularly of the law of God. We've we've come to that part of the Pentateuch in our series on the Pentateuch that we call the law of God. Since the law is a revelation of God's character, it is understood best and cherished most when viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the law, we're referring generally to what's sometimes called the Mosaic Law. That's all of the precepts, all of the statutes that are contained in the second half of Exodus and in Leviticus and in parts of Numbers, and that's reiterated in Deuteronomy. That's the law of God. The law of God is summarized. It's kind of, it's made succinct for us in the Ten Commandments. That's why we we spend so much time thinking about the Ten Commandments and we make monuments of the Ten Commandments and things like that. It's because the Ten Commandments, it's not that they're more special than any other part of the law. It's that they are kind of the summary statement. They're the distillation of the rest of the law uh, in a a short space of, of time. The law is the revelation of God's character, and it's understood best, and it's cherished most when it's viewed through the lens of God's ultimate revelation of himself, Jesus Christ. And so, as we mentioned last week, we're going to be spending time considering the Ten Commandments. We're going to be working through them each, one by one. Uh, And we're starting this week not with the Ten Commandments themselves, but we're starting here in the book of Romans and considering why. We're asking the question, why are we going to spend time looking at the Ten Commandments? Why are we, for that matter, why are we taking so long to go through the Pentateuch? I mean, Genesis has good stuff and some interesting stuff in Exodus, and maybe there's some good stories in Numbers and stuff like that, but but why are we going to go through Leviticus? Why are we going to spend time in Deuteronomy? Why? Well, the answer is, is before you on the screen. It's because the law reveals to us the character of God. And once we understand that, and when we understand that in the law we see not just the general character of God, but we see the character of Jesus, his son, and when we start to view the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law through the lens of Jesus, then I think we are prepared and equipped to love the law in the same way that the psalmists love the law, the same way that Paul speaks so honoringly of the law. Why are we spending time looking at the law? What place does the law have for us as Christians? We just read in Romans 8 that the law weakened by the flesh could not do for us what needed to be done, and so Jesus had to be sent. So why are we spending so much time on the law? What use is the law? The best answer to that question for us and what we're going to be considering this morning is what the Reformers talked about as the three uses of the law. And so we're, we're doing this as kind of a preface to this mini-series on the Ten Commandments. The three uses of the law. Uh, the, the Reformers in the, in the 16th, 17th centuries, in Heidelberg Catechism and in other places, they, they used fancy words for these three uses. And I'm going to use these fancy words. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to share these with you. But then I'm going to explain what they mean. And then I probably won't use them a whole lot more throughout the rest of our sermon. But you need to hear them so that you understand, so that you're familiar with the three uses of the law. The Reformers talked about the three uses of the law this way. They talked about the civil, pedagogical, and the didactic use of the law. The civil use, the pedagogical use, and the didactic use of the law. What those fancy terms mean, put simply, is in terms of the civil use of the law, it's that use of the law whereby the law becomes a restrainer of sin in society. All right. The pedagogical use of the law is that use of the law whereby the law serves as a pointer to salvation in Christ, And the third use, the didactic use, is that use of the law whereby the law serves as a guide to righteous living. And if you're paying attention, if I haven't lost you yet this morning, you'll notice that those are the three points that are printed on the back of your bulletin as well as what we're going to be talking about this morning. The law as a restrainer of sin, the law as a pointer to Christ, and the law as a guide to righteous living. We're going to be considering these three uses of the law as a preface to our conversation, our discussion of the Ten Commandments in the months to come. Since the law is a revelation of God's character, it is understood best and cherished most when it's viewed through the lens of God's ultimate revelation of Himself, Jesus' restrainer of sin in society. The law is a restrainer of sin in society. This is the basis, we say, for order and government in society, with God's law functioning largely in a common grace sort of way. You know what I mean when I say common grace? Common grace is distinguished from what we call special grace or particular grace. God's special grace, God's particular grace, God's redemptive grace, is that grace whereby we're saved, right? Not every human being is saved. Not every human being is a follower of Jesus. And so those who who are, who see the truth of of Jesus and his, his beauty and his perfection, they are recipients of a special grace. But God pours out a common grace on all people. And the scripture makes this clear in a number of places. Um, we see God's common grace at work when, when Jesus says, for example, that the, that the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and he sends his rain on the righteous and sinners alike. That's, I think it's also Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, or somewhere in Matthew you can, you can find it. This is the common grace of God, right? We see God's common grace at work in a lot of different places, a lot of different ways. The fact that we are all alive right now is an evidence of God's common grace, whether you realize it or not, because what we deserve is punishment. We deserve to be punished immediately for our sins because we are rebels against the all-good God. If God is perfect good and we are rebels against God, that means we are not. and We deserve punishment. We are rebels because we were born into a family of rebels, and we confirm that rebellion in our, in our actions. Right? We deserve punishment. We deserve hell. So the fact that we are alive at all is an evidence of God's common grace. You say, well, that's fine for those who are alive, but what about those who aren't? What about, those who, what about, what about children who die in the womb? What about those who die before they're, they're old enough to, uh, to, to see Jesus for who he is and make a decision one way or the other? What about them? Well, it's a hard question, I, I know. But I, I think as we read Scripture, we can see God's grace at work there, too. I think, I think the character of God as it is revealed in Scripture is such that we can conclude about those who, who die in the womb or who die without the ability to, to make a conscious decision in one direction or another that in, upon their death they go right into the arms of Jesus. This is evidence of God's grace. The fact that we can have joy in life, the fact that we can enjoy happiness, the fact that we have pleasure at all. Whether you're a Christian or not, you don't have to be a Christian to have pleasure in life. This is God's common grace, right? Every pleasure, every good thing, Scripture says, is a gift from the Father. And so as we talk about this use of the law as, as, as a restrainer of sin in society, this is another example of God's common grace, This works in a couple of different ways. It works, first of all, through the individual conscience so that people are not as bad as they could be, and it works, more pertinently for our conversation this morning, through the state so that people are not as bad as they could be. Paul, earlier on in this letter to the Romans, speaks about both of these uses, both of these evidences of God's common grace. He speaks about about conscience as an evidence of God's grace in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Romans two fourteen and 15, Paul says, When Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, this is, this is God's common grace, that every person has a conscience, so that every person uh, has the ability to not do certain bad things. Not every person is as bad as they could be. There are some people who are worse than others. Granted, there are evil people in the world. There are some really evil people in the world that you can see throughout history and even alive in the world today. And Even amongst uh, the more common people like us, there are some who are more evil than others. But every person has a conscience, and every person sometimes chooses not to do the evil that they might otherwise do. Every person sometimes chooses to do a good thing instead of an evil thing. This is conscience at work, Paul says. This is the evidence of God's law at work in all people, whether they realize it or not. And this is a common grace of God. This is God restraining sin so that the world is not as bad as it might be. I know that for some that, that might sound a little bit naive, but, but if you just pause and, and soberly think about it, you realize that as bad as the world is, it could be worse. It could be worse. And the fact that God, by his spirit and through his law on people's consciences, restrains sin at all is an evidence of his grace to all. So this is the way the conscience works. This is a way that the law restrains sin in society. But more to the point, uh, in terms of the civil use of the law, we see that God uses his law through the administrations of the rulers, through the state, to restrain sin, so that people are not as bad as they could be. It's about this that Paul speaks in Romans 13, where he speaks about governing authorities. Listen to these words from Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What Paul's talking about there is the fact that even the Roman government, the corrupt, evil Roman government of his day, Paul could look at and say, this is an evidence of the common grace of God. These rulers, as terrible as they are, enforce rules. And laws, and those laws, even when they're not consciously built on the Mosaic law, are still evidences of God's law written on the hearts of human beings. Such that sin is restrained. And certainly as we look around our culture that, that uh, has such better enforcement of law and order than the Roman Empire of Paul's day, we can say the same thing, that this is God's grace. That sin is restrained. We, we live in relatively little fear. Isn't that true? We're not generally... This is a generalization, I know. But we are not generally afraid of being robbed or murdered or having our houses broken into. I know those things happen, but, but they're the exceptions to the rule. And moreover, we can be certain that when those things do happen, the authorities will go after those wrongdoers. Why? Why? because they're God's ministers. They're enforcing the law of God, whether they realize it or not. This is, again, this is God's common grace. This is a way that God's law is used as a restrainer of sin in society, so that the world is not as bad as it might otherwise be. And brothers and sisters, before we move on from this, I just want you to think and give thanks to God for that. We live in a world where sin could be much worse, it could be much worse than it is. And indeed, you could even just see this uh, as you look at our culture and then compare it to other eras in world history and see how much better we have it. Give thanks to God for this grace that he has given. Give thanks to God for this common grace that he shares to all, all people, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. We must be thankful to God for working to restrain sin in our societies, for our safety and preservation. We should, we should worship him for his goodness in this. His grace is poured out on all, curtailing sin, rather than allowing sin to have its, its full reign. Understand that this is one of the things that will be terrible about perdition. This is one of the things that will be terrible about hell. Oftentimes we think of hell in terms of of the, of the active punishment, which the Bible does describe at different places, and I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm saying consider this aspect of hell for just a moment, that sin will be unrestrained. There will be no restraining influence of the Holy Spirit, no restraining influence from the law of God on people's consciences and hearts. Not only that, but there will be no pleasure in sin, in hell. In this life, this is another evidence of the common grace of God, incidentally. In this life, there is pleasure even in sin. Indeed, many times we wouldn't be tempted to sin without the accompanying pleasure. The fact that there is sin is a result of the fact that all sin is basically a twisting of one of God's good gifts to begin with. And in in God's good grace, the pleasure of that good gift still remains, even when it is enjoyed sinfully. But in hell, there will be sin, Without any kind of corresponding pleasure, no kind of joy, no kind of happiness, no kind of satisfaction. Indeed, in hell, we will be entirely free to sin and entirely enslaved to it at the same time. Give thanks to God for his grace to you now. This is the first use of the law. Law is a restrainer of sin in society, even when it is not consciously understood to be such. This is the civil use of the law. The second use of the law is what's called the pedagogical use. It's the use of the law as a pointer to salvation in Christ. And it's here that we're going to enter into our passage in Romans, particularly Romans 7. That's what Paul's talking about here in the second half of Romans 7, that the law serves as a pointer to salvation in Christ The law is, as he says in Galatians, a schoolmaster who leads us to Christ. Uh, That's the King James translation, the schoolmaster. I think some translations in Galatians 3 say it's a tutor, a tutor that leads us to Christ. The, The Greek word that Paul uses there is the word pedagogos, which is where we get the word pedagogue or pedagogical use of the law. And understand what Paul's talking about there in Galatians is is a reference to a function that was common in the Roman world of his day. Wealthy families would employ a pedagogue, a pedagogos, a, a, a teacher, oftentimes someone who was an enslaved individual of high education, and the purpose of this person in the household was to teach the children, particularly the sons of the household, and prepare them for life in the, in the world. It was the pedagogue's job to get them ready to teach them everything they needed to know and if on any given occasion or at the time of the maturity of those students they weren't ready if they didn't know the things they needed to know if they weren't well trained guess whose fault it was it was the pedagogue it was the teacher and they were and they would often be beaten or or otherwise punished because of their failures and so as a result those pedagogues were themselves often very harsh schoolmasters to those students and they were often given free reign over the students and they would teach very harshly and beat their students when the students didn't understand what they were doing. That was what a pedagogue was in Roman society. That's what Paul's referring to in Galatians when he says the law is our schoolmaster. It's our pedagogue. It's, it's our tutor that takes us to Christ. He had in his mind that image of that harsh schoolmaster who does whatever's necessary to, to implant the, the teaching that's necessary. That's what the law is. That's the second use of the law. It's our pointer, our guide, our schoolmaster that points us to Christ. Here in Romans 7, Paul gives us several ways that the law serves as a pointer to salvation in Christ. The law teaches us about our sinfulness and brings an awareness of sin as well as guilt over sin, making us realize our need for a savior. Consider five ways in Romans 7. We're going to read Romans 7, and then we're going to consider five ways that the law serves as a pointer to salvation in Christ. Follow along with me while I read Romans 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say, Paul says, that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. First of all the law teaches us what sin is. He says I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the first way that the law points us to salvation in Christ is it teaches us what sin is. Certainly there are some sins that we know are sins inherently that goes back to the conscience right the law of God that's written on our hearts And we don't consciously know that we're adhering to the law of God, but we are because we just know inherently that it's wrong to take something that belongs to someone else. For example, we know that it's wrong to hurt another person. You know, we know these things inherently. But Paul says there are some things that we don't know inherently. There are some things that no person would recognize as sinful, but which the law nevertheless condemns. And the example that he uses is coveting. Consider that for just a minute. Consider what it is to covet. covet is, coveting is, is having that feeling in your heart that you want something that someone else has. You're not acting on it. It's just a feeling in your heart, right? Apart from the law of God, no person would ever say that there's anything wrong with that. You're not hurting anybody, right? You're not even hurting yourself, necessarily. You're just wanting something that somebody else has that you don't have. But the law says, thou shalt not covet. Paul says, if it hadn't been for that commandment, I wouldn't even have known what coveting was. I wouldn't even have thought about it. I wouldn't even have put a name to it, right? So the first way that the law points us to salvation in Christ is it defines for us what sin is, but then it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. It multiplies the guilt of sin. Paul says, in essence, as soon as I learned that coveting was a sin, I suddenly found myself coveting all the time, We know how that works too, don't we? By making us aware of God's standard, the law makes us more guilty for transgressing it. That's part of it. James says to him who knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, right? So coveting was always sinful. Don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. It's not that Paul's saying it wasn't sinful until he learned it was sinful. What he's saying is, It was sinful before, but now that he knows it's sinful and still commits it, he's even more guilty than he was before. And more than that, by learning that it's prohibited, that titillates the mind and the heart of the person to start wanting to do it more than ever. And I think that was what produced the chuckle in all of us just a few minutes ago, right? We all have experienced that. We've all experienced that fact that when something is prohibited, even if the thing that's prohibited is something that we never would have wanted before, once it's ruled off limits, suddenly it it derives an attractiveness that we never noticed before. I think Paul's speaking to that too. So this is the second way that the law points us to salvation in Christ. It teaches us what what sin is. It multiplies the guilt of sin. And then third, the law demonstrates the sinfulness of sin. Sin, in fact, is so terrible that it takes something good namely the law, and uses it for something bad. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, Paul says. He's, he's hard on this, on this reality of this, that the law is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying the law itself is good, but sin is so terrible. Rebellion against God is so terrible that it takes something good and twists it and uses it for evil purposes. It's not the fault of the law. It's the fault of our sinful flesh. The fact that the law then produces evil things in us is evidence of just how sinful sin is, just how terrible sin is. And I, just, I, I just want you brothers and sisters to recognize this fact. This is something that is so easy for us to gloss over. It's so easy for us to, to recognize, to give mental assent to, and then put on the shelf and not think about it. How terrible sin is. How awful sin is, how evil sin is. We live with it so much that we become numb to it, but Paul says sin is so terrible it takes that which is holy and righteous and good, the law of God, and uses it to produce death. That is sin. So third, the law demonstrates the sinfulness of sin. Fourth, the law highlights our own slavery to sin. Look at the long section that follows as Paul describes, I think, his own struggle with sin. And through his description of his own struggle with sin, he's he's characterizing for us the struggle that all of us can identify with. Look at what he says in verses 14 and following. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." The fourth way that the law points us to salvation in Christ is it highlights our slavery to sin. By revealing God's character and standard, the law teaches us what is required of us. And by comparing our own behavior to the law standard, we see the terrible discrepancy. We see just how broken we are. We see just how enslaved to sin we are. The very struggle that we have with sin, the very fact, Paul says, that we know what's right to do and we want to do what's right, but we can't seem to make ourselves do it. That we can't seem to make ourselves stop doing that which is evil. That illustrates to us just how terrible sin is. And just how deeply enslaved we are. And just how great our problem is. The law is a pointer to salvation in Christ. You say, well, it hasn't done much pointing to Christ yet. All it's done so far is tell us just how bad sin is, just how bad we are. Yes. But look at how Paul concludes. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the fifth and final way that the law points us to salvation in Christ. After showing us just how terrible sin is, defining it for us, multiplying the guilt of it, showing us our slavery to it, it then points us to the only hope, which is Jesus. The law points us to the only one who can save us from our sinfulness. This is why when we share the gospel, we always have to give the bad news before we give the good news. We have to tell people how bad sin is. We have to show people that they're lost. When we were living In the South, I used to say that one of the frustrations with evangelism in the South is that you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Because every person you met was a member of some Southern Baptist church somewhere, and they all thought they were Christians, and and they all had some reason to think they were Christians, because they had a membership at a church, even though they hadn't been there for 20 years or something. And so before you could share the truth about Jesus and urge them to repent and trust in him, you had to show them that they weren't saved yet. That just having a membership card at a church isn't the same thing as salvation. I thought it was different here, and then I realized it's the same here as it was there. The labels on the outside are different. It's not Southern Baptist up here. It's, it's Roman Catholic or other things, you know, other, other, other labels that people use. It's non-denominational. It's Baptist. It's, it's Methodist. It's Lutheran. People have all kinds of labels that they use to describe themselves as, as right with God. But the reality is they need to learn that they are not right with God unless... They find themselves in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Holy Spirit then applies the law to us to convict us of our sinfulness and point us to Christ. This is true not only of the new believer, but for all Christians. We need to be constantly reminded of our need for Jesus. And this is the second thing that the law does for us. It points us to the truth in Christ. James describes this use of the law when he says that the law is a mirror that shows us our sinfulness. There's a more recent theologian named David Murray who takes that image from James and and carries it on a little bit further. He says, you know, when you look in a mirror, you see that a hair is out of place and you you can smooth it down or you see that you got some broccoli in your teeth and you can scrape it out or whatever it is. You look in the mirror and you see the things that need to be fixed and you can fix them, right? That works better for some of you than for all of us, but, you, but the theory is there. You see what needs to be fixed, and you can fix it. But David Murray says, how silly would it be? How, how absurd would it be if we saw our image of ourselves in the mirror? We saw that there was the hair out of place. We saw there was broccoli in our teeth. And then we said, okay. And then we took the mirror, and we tried to use the mirror to smooth down the hair. Or we took a shard of the mirror and started scraping at our teeth. Or we saw in the mirror that we were dirty, and so we broke the mirror into little pieces and rubbed the mirror on ourselves to get the dirt off. It's absurd and dangerous. But the law is only a mirror. The law cannot make us clean. All the law can do is show us how we're dirty, you see. What we need is something else. We need something that will help us get clean. And Paul tells us that that is what Jesus has done for us. The law shows us our need. It points us to Jesus, and that's where it stops. Jesus is the one who actually cleanses us. It is his work on the cross that saves us. It is his substitutionary death that pays the penalty for our sins. It is his spirit who cleanses us. It is the imputation of his record to us that makes us righteous. We need the gospel. We need to repent and trust The law points us to salvation in Christ. And then third, and quickly this morning before we run out of time, we want to consider that the law also is a guide to righteous living. The law is a guide to righteous living. The law reveals to us God's character as a guide to what pleases him. The standards of the law are achievable then only through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And God does this in a few different ways. First of all, the original guilt which the law exposed for our sinfulness is removed when we have faith in Christ. Look at Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Second, Christ removes the guilt of our sin by himself obeying the law perfectly. Verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ obeys the law perfectly, and as such, he can become the perfect offering for sin. And since he obeys the law perfectly as our substitute, the law is therefore fulfilled in us. What Paul is talking about here is what theologians sometimes refer to as double imputation. On the one hand, our sinful record is imputed to Christ, and he pays the penalty for it as he dies on the cross. On the other hand, Christ's perfect record of law-keeping is imputed to us. It's given to us. There's an exchange made. And so now we can say, without any sense of irony at all, we can say before the throne of God above, that we are law keepers. I don't know if you felt the weight of that. We sang about it a little bit ago. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea that I lived a really good life. We have a strong plea. We have a perfect plea. We are law keepers in Christ. Christ is the law keeper. And we are found in him. When God sees us, he sees Christ. More than that, Paul goes on and he says, the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so through the spirit of Christ and his regenerating work, we are then enabled to keep the law. And so we have this principle at work in ourselves as Christians Uh, that we call progressive sanctification, that as we walk with the Lord and as the Spirit does his work in us, the law of God is fulfilled not only in us positionally through the work of Christ, but practically in the way we live our lives. We see our lives coming more and more in line with the teaching of the law. We see ourselves becoming more and more sanctified. We see sin being eradicated more and more. And so the law then, in that sense, becomes a guide to righteous living. Everything in the law is valuable for us in that sense because it reveals God's character and it shows us what pleases him. The law becomes a guide for righteous living, not through outward obedience alone, but through inner spirit-led strength. The law is the revelation of God's character, but it's understood best and it's cherished most when it's viewed through the lens of God's ultimate revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, his Son. Ultimately, the law as a revelation of God's character uh, is only that when it can effectively be a pointer to Christ and when it serves as a guide to righteous living. And so we can only really understand the law well when we understand it through the lens of Christ, the giver of it. And that's what we're going to be attempting to do in the weeks to come. After our missions emphasis Sunday, next Sunday, we're going to get into the Ten Commandments. We're going to take them one by one, and we're going to try to view them through the lens of Christ's work. We're going to see what they reveal to us about the character of God, but also how Christ fulfills the law, how Christ interprets the law, and what that means for us. And my hope is that at the end of that short series in the Ten Commandments, we'll we'll have an understanding of, of what it means to love the law as a revelation of Christ. And that will prepare us for going through the rest of the Pentateuch as well.